I know something about us as a people, <clears throat> as a nation, and that is uh, we aren't overly fond of kings. Like uh, it, it's part of our origin story as a nation, uh, and our and our origin story is complex and and problematic in places. There's like layers to our origin story, but one of the main thrust of our origin stories is that uh, our founding fathers decided we didn't want to be ruled by a king that's far away that makes decisions doesn't know us isn't connected to us can tax us and we don't have representation and so like deep in our dna as a nation as a as a people we uh we have this resistance to the idea of a king that sort of autonomous complete authority over us that can make uh decisions without our input we don't like that like it's deep down in us in our dna somehow we throw tea into the harbor and things like that when we we think about kings like it just it doesn't sit well with us and yet i've also noticed that many of us maybe not all of us Many of us are fascinated by, maybe we could say some of us are obsessed, with royalty in general. Anyone know somebody that's obsessed with the crown or obsessed with Harry and Meghan or obsessed with William and Kate? Like some of us, we don't want a king, but we are very into royalty in general. Here's what I think happens. Um, we like royalty as long as they can't impact our lives, right? We like the idea of kings and queens and pageant, pageantry and ceremony and, and royalty provided they have absolutely no say-so in what happens in my life. They don't make any laws for me. They, they don't make any decisions for me. I'm interested. I'm a little obsessed with how the whole thing works. I want to watch TV shows about it. I just don't want them to have any control in my life. Even the British people are kind of this way, right? And I'm not one. I don't mean to speak for them. But, I mean, they get it. They get that this, the, the royals really don't impact our lives. They don't make decisions. They can't tax us. Uh, they can't make laws. They can influence. Like they have some influence in the country, but they can't really make any big decisions that affect our lives. And so we like the pageantry. We don't like the rule part of being kings. And provided you can be royal and not rule, we're good with that. We like it. We're going we're gonna to watch the show. We're, we're, we're going to read the book. Uh, in this series, we're talking about descriptions of God. We're going to wrap it up today. This is the last one. We, we, we've titled it, God is, and we've said, God is the great I am, and God is there. God is the one who sees. God is the one who provides. God is our, our healer. We're going to find a new identification for God today. This is how David describes God in Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. So David says God is not just the one who sees. He's not just the one who heals. He's not just the one who provides. God is the King. God is the ruler. 
God is the one who reigns over everything. And again, we're distantly familiar with the idea of kings and even queens. We're, we're distantly familiar with how all of that works. We like it as a spectator sport. We don't really want to be involved with it. We just kind of voyeuristic. We just kind of watch it from the outside. We're familiar with it a little bit. David was more familiar with it. He was a king at the time. And David says, there's a king that's above me. There is a king that is above all of the other kings. There is one who rules and reigns over all things. No matter what titles we have here on earth, there is one who is above everything. Now, what makes you a king is you have a kingdom. Right? Every king has a kingdom. And David describes the kingdom of God a little bit later in that psalm. Verse 10 says, All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. God is the king. He reigns over his kingdom. And David says it's an everlasting kingdom. It didn't have a beginning. doesn't have an end. It's going to keep going and going and going. No one's going to replace him. There's not going to be a state funeral one day where the king gets buried and the crown gets passed down to somebody else. This is an everlasting kingdom. It's going to go on and on and on. Now, give you a definition, a working definition of kingdom for our purposes today. A kingdom is everything within the boundaries of the king's rule. Kingdom is everything within the boundaries of the king's rule. Everywhere that he has say, everywhere that he has influence, everywhere that he can make decisions, wherever the king's rule extends, that's his kingdom. And, and where it ends, that's no longer his kingdom. Right? The, the king of one kingdom can't make rules for another kingdom. That's why we call it uh, sovereign territory. You make decisions within these boundaries. You don't get to make decisions over here. That's somebody else's boundary. So what is the, what is the boundary of God's kingdom? Where does his rule end and somebody else's rule begin? Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. No boundaries, no limitations. God is the king who rules over everything, who rules over everyone, who, who rules, rules over every place and space and outside of space, rules within time, outside of time, beyond time. He is the king over all. So how do we respond? What, what is our response? What do we do with God who is king over all? No boundaries. There's actually a couple of ways you can respond. You, you have, for now, a little bit of freedom in how you respond to this God who is king over all. For example, number one, we can ignore the rule of God. 
and live as if we're the king. That's one response, and we see people doing that. Right, right now, in this place, in this time, one response to the God who is king over all is to ignore that he's the king and pretend that you're the king. Make all of your own decisions. Direct your own life. Decide what is right and wrong for you. Decide what is truth for you. Right? The popular phrase, we're living my own truth, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about, but you could do that. You could decide what's true for you. You could decide how you want to live. You can resist the idea of there being a God and a king and a kingdom, and you can make up your own rules. Now, in an earthly kingdom, where there is a, an earthly king who makes earthly rules within earthly boundaries... If you decide to disobey the rules of that king, you get punished, right? usually quickly. You break the rules of the king, the ruler, the president, the whatever. You, you break the rules of the authority, you get punished. And yet we know that there are people who are living as if God doesn't exist, as if they are, they are their own king and nothing seems to happen. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the points of tension for most of us that we think God should be getting people more than he is. God should be punishing people more than he is. Now, we don't want to be punished, right? When we do something wrong, we don't want God to punish us. But we're very certain there are a lot of people in the world that deserve to get it. And we're a little bothered sometimes when God doesn't get them. But God, God doesn't. God, even though he reigns over everything, his, his rule is boundless. God gives freedom right now for people to say, I don't want to obey you. I want to obey me. I don't want to live for you. I want to live for me. This is, this is how Peter explains this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord, the God, the King is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter says, look, right now, God's first instinct isn't to get people. God's first instinct isn't to punish people. God is allowing some freedom within his kingdom and that patience that he's allowing with people is giving more people time to turn to him. Like This is God's motivation. It's not that God is fine with evil. It's not that God overlooks wrong. It's that God wants in every individual heart and around the world that he created in total, God wants more people to come to him. God wants more people to come to him. And so he's not immediately judging. He's not immediately punishing people when they do wrong. Instead, he's giving them time to recognize his rule over the world and acknowledge his rule in their own life. And that sometimes doesn't satisfy us. We want more immediate consequences. But right before this verse, notice what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 8. 
But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Like, understand, God has a whole different timetable than you and I. God's working on a different calendar than you and I. God sees things from outside time and space. He knows beginning. He knows end. He sees everything in between. And Peter says, your desire for swift justice fails to recognize that God has a different perspective than you have. And he's not slow. Remember, Peter said that. He, he, he's not overlooking these things. God's going to bring judgment at some point. It's just that right now, God's heart, God's desire is that more people would know Him. More people would come to Him. More people would recognize Him as King. He says in the verse after, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Yet there's coming a time... When God's judgment will be visited, when, when, when what is wrong will be met by a righteous God, that's coming. It's not on your timetable. It's not on my timetable. God's working on His timetable. And right now, His timetable is a heart of compassion and patience to say, look, I want you to come to me. I want you to figure out that you don't make a very good king of your life. I want you to figure out that you don't make a very good ruler over your life in the long term. And I want you to come to me. I want you to discover the king that loves you. It's possible that even though God is king and he reigns over all, you can live as if there is no king except you. Another way that you could respond to this king, we can admire the royalty and still ignore the rain. Similar to what I was talking about with Harry and Meghan and, and, and the royals in real life. I, I think for, for some people, there is, a, there is an interest, there is a draw to the pageantry of Christianity. There is a draw to the idea of God. For many of us, we want there to be a God. We want things to work out. We want to believe there's a place after we die. We're drawn to this, this nice idea of God. We're drawn to the, we're drawn to the music, perhaps. We're, we're, we're drawn to the singing. We're, we're drawn to the way we feel when we come to places like that. And all of that is good. But sometimes we're drawn to the pageantry of church and Christianity and, and the idea of God, but we aren't submitting to the rule of God. We aren't giving our lives over completely to this God who does rule and reign. We, we sort of pick and choose the parts that we want to adhere to and the, the parts that we want to ignore. We, we want to enjoy the, the feeling of all of this, but we're reluctant to listen to what God says about our relationships or what God says about our marriage or what God says about our sexuality or what God says about how we're supposed to live. We like the pageantry. We like the royalty. But we don't submit to the rule and the reign of this king. Third way we can respond to the king is we can respond imperfectly 
imperfectly but consistently submit to our great king. None of us are going to be perfect. And none of us are going to get this right every single time, but uh, the posture of our heart can be, God, you do rule. You do reign. You know what is best for me. And following you is, is what's going to bring the greatest flourishing and fulfillment to my life. So God, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to know what you say. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to submit my life to you. Realizing when you do that, that this king is always going to do what is best for his subjects. This king is always going to make the decisions that are best, that are good for the flourishing and the growth of the people who follow him. He doesn't exploit his subjects. Like every other king, to some degree, some to great degree, some to smaller degree, but every other king uses their subjects for their power. They use the people under their rule and reign to maintain power, to gain more power. Right? Not even kings, like our politicians, right? They, we are used so they get power. This, this is the way worldly leaders eventually end up, looking at the people under them as people who help the person who's a ruler. We have a king in God we have a king who isn't looking to exploit the people under him, who isn't looking to use the people who serve him and love him and follow him. He's looking to do what's best for them. Which is why it, it's interesting that the kingly royal metaphor for God is not the only one that gets used in the scriptures, right? It's one of, an, of several metaphors that get used for who this God is. Yes, he rules and he reigns, and we should acknowledge that. But the Bible says this God loves us so much that he thinks of us not just as subjects. He thinks of us as sons and daughters. Like the king is our dad. The all-powerful one is our father. The one who rules and reigns over all things loves in the way that the very best fathers and mothers love their children. That's the other picture of this God. The all-powerful one loves like a good parent. You're not just a subject. You're a daughter. You're a son. Some of us are old enough or we studied in history and we remember this sort of iconic picture of uh, John F. Kennedy and John Jr. Uh, the president is in the Oval Office. He's sitting at the Resolute desk and underneath the desk is, is John Jr. The most powerful man in the world, certainly in our nation, but probably in the whole world, most powerful man in the whole world, most powerful desk in the whole world and one little boy knows, that's my dad who sits there. That's my dad who rules. I think maybe we have one more picture. Yeah. Right? Like here's the president. He's, he's, he's ruling and reigning in the way that presidents do, elected presidents do. He has all of this power. No, but that's, that's his son right there. 
This is the king that we serve. This is the king that we celebrate. The king who is all-powerful and all-knowing and righteous and holy and, yes, wants right and not wrong, wants good and goodwill win over evil and at the same time, that's our dad. That's our dad. Now here's what I know about all of us and I, I sort of mentioned it. None of us could be perfect subjects to this king. Right? John Jr. was not a perfect son all the time, I'm sure, to the president. None, none of us are, are perfect subjects to this king as a matter of fact because of our sin scripture tells us that our relationship with God was broken severed uh, we were separated from this God father king who loves us we were separated by our own disobedience tracing it all the way back to the first humans but even though the sin nature is real and, and, and is a theological concept, the reality is you don't have to trace it all the way back to the first humans, do you? You probably have to trace it back to Friday, right? the last time you disobeyed, right? Or, or Saturday about 1030, right? maybe this morning, maybe right before you walked in here. Now, we don't have to trace it thousands of years. We, we trace it back to our own life. We know that we've disobeyed the king. We've We've disobeyed our Father's desires for us. And, and the Bible says that separated us. And somebody had to do something about that because we couldn't. Someone with more power than us had to do something about our broken relationship. And as we said earlier, we're stepping into the week where we celebrate the fact that God, through His Son, Jesus reunited us, made forgiveness possible, made grace and goodness possible in our lives through the death of His Son hundreds of years before Jesus came. The prophet Zechariah spoke about this king that was going to come on our behalf. Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey righteous and victorious and then almost the opposite lowly and riding on a donkey and 2,000 years ago it happened this is John 12 the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. He's quoting Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Zechariah and the other prophets. They tried so hard to say the king's going to come one day. And he's not going to be what you think. The key, the all-powerful, great God is going to come to earth. Messiah is going to come. And he's not going to be what you think. He's not going to grasp military power. He's not going to grasp political power. He's not even going to grasp religious power. As a matter of fact, he's going to be rejected by all of those seats of power. And yet he's going to be the king you ever listen to somebody on the radio for a long time 
And because you listen to their voice and you kind of pick up on their personality, you get an image of what they look like in your head. You create this person in your mind that is talking to you. And then one day you see them at an event or you decide, I'm going to Google this person and see what they actually look like. And 9.9 times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, you pull them up and what do you say? That is not what I thought they looked like. That is not what I thought they looked like. They don't look like the way they sound. Something like that. Because we get this image of what we expect based on a little bit of information about a person. And then we realize, oh, we had the wrong image. And Zechariah tried to, tried to say, you got the wrong image about the king that's coming. He's going to come. He's going to be victorious, just not in the way you think. He's come to defeat sin. He's come, he's come to defeat the enemy in your life. He's come to set you free. But he hasn't come for the power that you think he's coming from. He's going to look differently. As a matter of fact, he's going to ride in one day, not on a white horse, not, not as a champion. He's going to come lowly. He's going to be humble because he's coming to take away your sin. He's coming to be your sacrifice. This king is coming to lay down his life for you. Listen, he did wage a battle. That's absolutely true. He was victorious in the battle that he fought. It's just that the battle he fought was for your sin. It wasn't for power in Rome. It wasn't even to elevate his people to some cultural power point. It was to defeat the sin that would wreck our lives and destroy our eternity. And Zechariah said he's going to be victorious at that. He's going to win at that. He's going to defeat that enemy in your life. Now, most kings, most kings in this world, in all of history, they send somebody else to die for them. Think about it. They send sons and daughters to go die for their power. They send somebody's sons and daughters to go die for their advancement. There is one king who did not send somebody to die in his place. There is one king that came to die in your place. He didn't send you to the battle. He didn't send your kid to the battle. He didn't send anybody you know to the battle. He came and went to the battle himself. This is the king that we celebrate this week. This is the king that we celebrate at Easter. The king that didn't send us to die. He came and died in our place. He has that. One of his final conversations is with a Roman leader by the name of Pilate. Pilate was, Pilate was confused by the whole thing. Uh, Pilate did not want to be a part of it. Pilate's wife didn't want him to be a part of it. He was trying to get out of this decision, and this is part of the encounter. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Jesus said, 
My kingdom is not of this world. There he is, still using king and kingdom language. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. Pilate is continually trying to play word games with Jesus. He's continually trying to sidestep this moment. He wants to let Jesus off, but he also doesn't want to be responsible either way. And so he says, are you a king? And here was Jesus' question. Here was his pressing question to Pilate. Is that what you think? Or does somebody just tell you that? Is that what you think? Are you just repeating what somebody told you? This is, this is the biggest question of Easter, really. Not, do you know the songs that we sing at Easter? Not, have you heard the story? Not, could you tell the story? What do you think? What do you think? Are you just repeating things you've heard? Or is this what you think? Is this the God that you've acknowledged as king? Is this the Savior that you've received? Pilate stands Jesus before the crowd and says, Here's your king. And the crowd rejects Jesus. Crucify him. Away with him. Give us Barabbas. They choose a murderer, insurrectionist to be the one that is set free, and they send Jesus to die. Jesus and Pilate have this other interaction, and it's the same thing. Pilate's trying to sidestep the issue, and Jesus keeps pressing the issue. What do you think? What do you think? You see, God is king. Jesus is king. His, his rule knows no boundaries. Have you acknowledged that? Have you received that this Easter season? Is he king for you, this one who came to die in your place for your sins, that you would have eternal life, that you would receive forgiveness? Is that what you say? Or is that just a story you've heard? Let's pray. God, you are indeed king Jesus is indeed king. We come to this week to be reminded that he is a king who gave his life away for us. He is a, a king that did not send us to die, but he died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, God, help us not to be royalty watchers when it comes to the kingdom of God, but to be grateful subjects and grateful sons and daughters of the king. If this question is not settled in anyone's heart, let it be settled today. Let them come to faith today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.